kicking off the year. Sanford Unger, president of Goucher College. Welcome you to the Hyman Forum in the Goucher College Athenaeum. Great spot to talk about big ideas. And our topic this evening is Let the Great World Spin, the summer reading for all new incoming students to Goucher. And as you know, this afternoon uh, they have met in small groups to talk about the book uh, with members of the faculty and the staff. And now this evening Colin McCann, the author, and then have a dialogue with him. Uh, Colin McCann was born in Dublin in only 1965, an amazingly recent uh, year. Began his began his career as a journalist in the Irish with the Irish Press. Uh, he's the award-winning author of six novels and two collections of short stories. An extraordinarily successful writer whose work has been published in more than 35 languages. member of the Irish Academy. He's a truly international person, and you know how we love international people at Goucher. We're all international people here. Uh, he was born in Ireland, has traveled extensively around the world, bicycled the length and breadth of this country, lived in Japan for 18 months, holds dual Irish and American citizenship. This book, Let the Great World Spin, uh, has been a bestseller on four continents won the National Book Award in the United States in 2009. And the film rights for it have been bought by a highly acclaimed director, J.J. Abrams. And so uh, we will one day be seeing it on film and wondering whether it does justice to the book. Those of us who are in the know have read the book. Uh, he has written about homeless people in the subway tunnels of New York, the troubles in Northern Ireland, and the aftermath of 9-11. Uh, teaches at Hunter College in New York in its creative writing program and uh, is uh, dedicated, has, has uh, launched a new global charity, Narrative 4, which puts people together to tell their stories from around the world. Uh, several of Colum's books are for sale down here and he'll also be glad to sign the copies of Let the Great World Spin that we sent to you this summer if you're interested in having them sign and they'll sign any, uh, any of the new books that are purchased. Um, it is really a great privilege to have Colin McCann here with us and we will hear from him, then he and I will have a little bit of a conversation and we'll open up the program for questions, especially from incoming students to Goucher. Please join me in giving a Goucher welcome to Colin McCann. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Um, what an incredible, incredible honor to be here. And I apologize to those of you who had to read the book. Take it away from your good summer holidays. Um, you know, um, my deepest thanks um, to everybody here at Goucher. And to everybody who led the sessions um, today and everybody who attended the sessions. I actually attended two of them. Uh, Myself this afternoon, 
and, and, and it was it was fantastic. What a moment it is uh, for for you guys. I envy you. Uh, I envy you greatly. You're about to uh, step out on the tightrope, and uh, the group. Yes, the big tightrope. You know, uh, Philippe Petit, he did it a um, quarter of a mile in the sky. Um, and sometimes it doesn't matter if it's a quarter of a mile in the sky or 20 feet in the sky or six inches um, off the ground. It's still a tightrope. But one of the amazing things about um, this thing that you're about to uh, embark on is that in the uh, area of uh, in the area of literature, the area of exploration and adventure and knowledge, that when you um, go out on a tightrope, you are able to fall halfway. Most of the time, you can't fall halfway. You hit the ground with a tremendous thump. But um, when you're exploring books, and when you're exploring ideas, um, and you're in a place that's comfortable and sound, and you're around all your good friends, uh, you will have the ability to walk a tightrope uh, without, in the most spectacular way, but without necessarily Mind you, there might be a few nights when some of you go out and, and walk a different sort of tightrope altogether. And that's part and parcel of life and uh, life in college. Um, but one of the things that interests me is the ability um, to be adventurous, for the ability for you guys to take off from this particular moment and to throw away any sort of um, logical GPS that has been given to you before and create your own. Part of that means the ability to get lost. Um, and I mean that, I, I could say to you tonight, get lost. But I mean it in the very best sense of the word. Um, the ability to explore um, and, 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 and to uh, engage in what I uh, want to explain um, in just a few moments, what I feel to be, I said it's a couple of students today, and the vivifying notion of failure. And um, to try and illustrate that, I'm just going to read you a short passage from the book um, where Philippe Petit is about to step out um, upon the wire. One foot on the wire, his better foot, the balancing foot. First he slid his toes, then the sole, then his heel. The cable nested between his big and second toes to grip. His slippers were thin, the soles made of buffalo hide. He paused there a moment, pulled the line tighter by the strength of his eyes, played out the aluminium pole along his hands. The coolness rolled across his palm. The pole was 55 pounds, half the weight of a woman. She moved on his skin like water. He had wrapped rubber tubing round its center to keep it from slipping. With a curve of his left finger, he was able to tighten his right-hand calf muscle. The little finger played out the shape of his shoulder. It was the thumb that held the bar in place. He tilted it upward right, and the body came slightly left. The roll in the hand was so tiny that no naked eye could see it. His mind shifted space to receive his old practice self. No tiredness in his body anymore. He held the bar in muscular memory, and in one flow went forward. What happened then, for an instant, was that almost nothing happened. He wasn't even there. Failure didn't even cross his mind. It felt like a sort of floating, 
He could have been in the meadow. His body loosened and took on the shape of the wind. The play of the shoulder could instruct the ankle. His throat could soothe his heel and moisten the ligaments. A touch of the tongue against his teeth could relax his thigh. His elbow could brother his knee. If he tightened his neck, he could feel it correcting in his hip. At his center, he never moved. He thought of his stomach as a bowl of water. If he got it wrong, the bowl would right itself. He felt for the curve of the cable with the arch and then the sole of his foot. A second, second step and a third. He went out beyond the first guy lines, all of him in sync. Within seconds. This is where I want you guys to be. Within seconds, he was pureness moving, and he could do anything he liked. He was inside and outside his body at the same time, indulging in what it meant to belong to the air. No future, no past, and this gave him the offhand vaunt to his walk. He was carrying his life from one side to the other the lookout for the moment when he wasn't even aware of his breath. The core reason for it all was beauty. Walking was a divine delight. Everything was rewritten when he was up in the air. New things were possible with the human form. It went beyond the equilibrium. He felt for a moment uncreated another kind of So, you reckon you know why I read that passage to you? Do you reckon why, uh, why why I read that? Do you know Do you know why I read that passage? Okay, can, can you tell me? <laughs> exactly. We are about to do the same thing. Not only are you about to do the same thing, but um, thankfully uh, I'm about to do the same thing, and your teachers are about to. Do these are all going to do something uh, that doesn't compute now for a while and hopefully later on in life you'll do other things that even further don't compute in this um, ability to go out to take on a challenge also as I say to get lost and to embrace the possibility of failure because nothing would have happened with Philippe Petit if he didn't have that possibility of failure. It would have been too safe, too easy. He would have just gone across. Um, but what I find completely vivifying is the prospect that um, many of us are about to fall. Now, if you have the book there in front of you, um, uh, can you turn to page 237? Who said what book? <laughs> Who said, I didn't read this page? Okay. <laughs> uh, as you can see, it's a picture. Um, it was actually taken by a photographer called Victor Lusa on um, August 1974. It's a picture of Philippe Petit looking like a little fly man uh, between the two World Trade Center towers. And eerily, in the background, um, there is a, a plane that looks as if it is about to smash 
into the buildings. I mean, um, it's an, it, it, it was one of those moments that when I found this particular photograph, I knew I had the novel that I wanted to write because um, I was perching on my own particular tightrope. Um, but I wanted to bridge the distance between uh, New York 1974 and 9-11. Um, and um, I'm just going to read a, a little section from the end of the book, which hopefully makes sense of the photograph for you, but also some of this idea about um, embracing the idea of the adventure and also the idea that it's okay at this particular stage to fall and to take things on in the most extraordinary way. Um, it's a passage called Roaring Seaward and I Go, October 2006. And it's about the photograph. So just don't try to find the passage, but just look at the photograph and see if it makes sense. She often wonders what it is that holds that man so high in the air. What sort of ontological glue up there in his haunted silhouette a dark thing against the sky, a small stick figure in the vast expanse, the plain on the horizon, the tiny thread of rope between the edges of the buildings, the bar in his hands, the great spread of space. The photo was taken on the same day her mother died. It was one of the reasons she was attracted to it in the first place, the sheer fact that such beauty had occurred at the same time. She had found it yellowing and torn in a garage sale in San Francisco four years ago, at the bottom of a box of photographs. The world delivers its surprises. She bought it, got it framed, kept it with her as she went from hotel to hotel. A man high in the air while a plane disappears, it seems, into the edge of the building. One small scrap of history meeting a larger one as if the walking man were somehow anticipating what would come later, the intrusion of time and history, the collision point of stories. We wait for the explosion, but it never occurs. The plane passes. The tightrope walker gets to the end of the wire. Things don't fall apart. And it strikes her as an enduring moment, the man alone against scale, still capable of myth in the face of all other evidence. Now, that's what I think that you guys in particular are capable of in the face of the evidence that's presented to us. We're still capable of making myth and making stories and embracing a, a, a huge sort of optimism um, about the things that are, are yet to come. I happen to be a sort of um, a relentless uh, optimist, and I get slagged a little bit for being, for, for being an optimist, but um, I truly believe that the very best optimists are pessimists first. So to be a really good optimist, you've got to be as equally pessimistic as the worst pessimist there. So you can imagine all these parties that are yet to come and you see that guy sitting over there in the corner brooding and cynical and sort of like, you know, talking about like European philosophy and it's all finished and it's all death and destruction. Ah. You have to be able to go over to the corner of the room and be as equally dark as him 
and then just walk away. Because the fact of the matter is that cynicism and pessimism um, is actually very easy in relation to uh, what you're about to embark on. And, 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 and the, uh, the cynics can talk about the optimists as being romantics and sentimental, but not to me. To me, the cynics are sentimental because they live in their own little corner. They don't have any bigness about them. They don't have an ability to think outside of their own little landscape of cynicism. So if you have any challenge over the next few years, it's to go on, go out on that tightrope, right? Um, understand that it's difficult. Understand that there is the potential for failure. Understand that you can fall. Understand that many people do fall. Um, but you have to be there and develop a deep empathy for otherness so that you be can become bigger and better and stronger than all those people who are willing to sort of pull you down and say that the world is small and everything smashes and everything is meaningless. Because um, if there is any evidence at all available, say, on a night like tonight, it is that um, that sort of thinking of smallness is absolutely not true. But if you close your ears, nothing will happen and nothing will ever change. And part of it is going to have to be that you get agile and acrobatic and expansive and brave and ready to take on all these things that are, that, that, that are coming your way. And I am pretty sure, given what I know about this college and the ideas that are, that, that, that are running around and the global nature of um, uh, how you seem to be looking, that um, a couple of years from now um, I'll come back and maybe have a chat with some of you guys and things will be blown wide open. And I really hope so. And for me, I have to say, it is a huge honor to be chosen as a book to sort of kick off um, that adventure. Because I truly believe that not only is it just something for me personally um, that uh, you know, it gives me a shiver to think that um, this is a book you kick off your college career with, but I also believe um, that books should allow things. They should be open-ended. Um, they should push you forward into new ideas. And you create the new ideas. And that maybe someday down the line, I'll be coming back here listening to you guys, and you will be the ones who will have informed uh, my particular story. So I will say again to you, um, be prepared to get lost. Um, grow more complex. Do not allow anything to be reduced by any simplicity, but embrace some simplicity. Uh, and claim again uh, out of the future all of the good that you can do. I wish you the very best of luck on the tightrope. And uh, later on this evening, after we've finished our chat, uh, I would be delighted to answer um, any questions. Though at this moment in time, uh, my real question um, is to you guys. It's like, and how much are you going to enjoy it, and what are you going to do with it? Thank you so much.
Thank you. The tightrope metaphor. Though I will tell you that even as you reread those passages about Philippe Petit on the tightrope, it makes me nervous. I mean, my skin starts to, you know, I crawl even, a little I bit. couldn't stand on this table without, like, shaking. Seriously, I have terrible <laughs> vertigo. So, so if we're going to use this uh, tightrope metaphor, um, I think, um, I, I, I wonder, I, I, I love your challenge, and I love the notion of urging people to grow more complex. I can't think of anything more appropriate. But um, what about the, the fear side of going out on that tightrope? What about the way, I mean, if it makes me feel nervous when I hear you reading about Philippe Petit going on that tightrope, I have to guess there are a few other people in the room who feel nervous when they hear it, when they hear it reiterated. Um, yeah. how, how about dealing with those fears? Well, I think you have to be lucky. I think you have to have friends around you. Um, and I think you have to uh, have some sort of courage in relation to, to what you can do. Um, but I, I mean, I was scared. Okay, I'll tell you that, you know, I went to college in Dublin. I was in college for two years. I was a job as a journalist. I came over here and I told some of you today, I went out on a bicycle across the United States, right? And I was 21 years old and I did it till I was 23. And it's kind of a, it was a mad journey. But it was a fantastic journey. But loads of times, like I'd be in, you know, Pennsylvania on a little back road, or I'd be sleeping in. Be careful not to say anything bad about Pennsylvania. Oh, they were terrible in Pennsylvania. They were awful. Awesome. I know they were great. Now Maryland was the place where I got really roughed up. <laughs> no, but I'd be sleeping in, um, in, you know, in a swamp down in Louisiana, or. Um, you know, on a little road in Wyoming that went up for 157 miles. And I was thinking, what the hell am I doing? This is crazy. You know, I should be back in Ireland. I should have a job. I should have medical insurance. I should, you know, <laughs> I should have all these things. And, um, you know, so I, even in the process of heading off on an adventure, I can romanticize it now, but I was pretty much terrified at it. But I think uh, part of it was just um, embracing the notion um, of otherness. And, this, and I didn't even realize that at this stage, I'm only making up my mind on these ideas now, uh, these ideas of radical empathy. I'm almost 50 years old. Um, but uh, it was listening to other people, hearing other people's stories, being sort of... Um, available to hear things that were going And sometimes people would bore the living daylights out of me, you know, sit at the side <laughs> of the room and tell me their stories about their grandmother did this. Um, but it was the ability to learn that I had to, to, to listen to people. And it, it, it was fabulously generous. This country I found to be fabulously generous. And if you take that on a college level, what that really means is um, the ability to jump in at odd angles to the unknown and also to embrace uh, the, the excellence of difficulty. And that's weird sometimes. That, uh, you know, um, but 
what I mean by the excellence of difficulty is that sometimes you read a book or you take on an equation or you embrace an idea about physics that seems so weird and complex and difficult that you'll never be able to do it. But by embarking into it and adventuring into it, uh, you come out the far end and um, the difficulty is actually the thing that charges you the most. Everybody wants things to be reduced to, you know, the simple answer, the simple A, the simple... All of you guys want A's, right? The A culture is terrible. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but, um, but no, I, I do understand that, because you need a 4.0, blah, blah, blah. But part of it is, I mean, the really adventurous amongst you are going to jump in to the unknown. Um, and you might drown for a little while. But the purpose of college is to make sure that you don't drown. You have people around you. Um, and you will not drown in an idea. You will drown in water, but you will not drown in an idea. And I think it, 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 it's a good thing, a good way to think about it. Also, it's a lot of fun. True. Did you have fun in college? I did. Yeah? Do you want to tell us? No. Tell us one of the stories. <laughs> See, I can ask him that, right? <laughs> Let's change the subject. Um, I, I, I'm interested in, in um, we're going to go to questions, and people should, people have been thinking about their questions for you all day. And there are two microphones, one over there, one down here, students only. Um, so we'll let them start to line up. but. Um, you're an optimist, and uh, so this is an optimistic book, I suppose. That, and I I understand particularly your point about going through pessimism and going through difficulty before you arrive at optimism. So I think a lot of us would like to understand a little more about how that happened for you, how you did this, um, because some of what you're dealing with here is pretty raw and and painful. And when I first read this book about two years ago, um, I didn't see optimism for um, until I got pretty far along in the book. Um, I'm a realist. Um, I look at the world, and I think it's um, you know it's fairly tough. It's fairly brutal, and it's very hard um, to get by. If you had an alien land down um, on Earth and you tried to explain to them the, 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 the uh, you know, notions about certain countries holding military weapons, certain uh, individuals holding ideas over races, certain people lording gender issues, and, uh, you know, and you tried to explain some of the things that were going on in the world, it would be virtually impossible to achieve some sort of like simple answer about how much we've messed up the world. Right? It really would. I mean, how would you explain this to people? It is a tough, hard, unrelenting sort of place. And it is your job as physicians, as physicists, as mathematicians, as poets, as geographers, as biology majors, whatever it happens to be, to go out there and, and understand that the world is really quite a dark place. But so what? The world is a dark place. That is no great revelation. 
People have been saying that for a long, long time. The real revelation comes in um, acknowledging the fact that the darkness doesn't exist without a little bit of light. And you have to find the available light that's there and see how it's operating. Um, and so in order to achieve some sort of um, modicum of what I would call proper optimism, I think you have to be available to understand that it's going to be tough and, and, and dark um, a, a, along the way. Um, because in the, in the end, anyone can say to you, yeah, it's tough. But not a whole lot of people except yourself and maybe a few, you know, uh, people, good people around you can say to you, ah, but it means something. Because all of it comes down to value. We all want to be valuable. Every single person in this room wants to be valuable. Um, and we become valuable not just by telling our story to others or by doing things, but by, by listening to the stories of others. So it takes some sort of, you have to be muscular um, to, be, to be an optimist. You have to be really in shape. There's been this sort of perennial idea around optimism that is soft and easy. Now, for me, the, the real optimists are the ones who are like really out there working it every day. So in putting this remarkable book together and wanting to observe 9-11, wanting people to uh, feel, to understand New York, I think, um, how, did you, how did you travel that particular voyage from realism to optimism? How did you arrive at optimism for the end of this story? That was a, that, that's a tough one. I mean, when we look at 9-11 and we look at what happened and like um, these evil geniuses drove these planes into, in, 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 into a building and, uh, you know, so many lives got lost here and so many lives got lost abroad. Um, how do you find some sort of um, optimism out of that? And people might look at you and say, well, that's absurd. Um, but I think uh, what we learn is sort of um, how to heal, how to recover, how to get better, how to... And you know, the, whole, the whole thrust behind the novel is, you know, uh, you know that basically there are these, um, these lives that have been lived out in sort of often in quiet despair. There's always a little moment of beauty uh, at the edge of it that makes sense of it. And I, I think sometimes for me, the easiest way for me to explain this to anybody is that like about 15 years ago, um, I went and got to know the homeless people in the subway tunnels of New York, right? And this, these are dark tunnels, dirty tunnels, full of rats, full of dust uh, from the, the rails going past. You have to be careful if you're down there too long because your lungs get all choked up. And there's, um, there's people living down there. I met uh, Vietnam veterans, um, I met um, women who were um, offering up their bodies, prostitutes, uh, crack addicts, I met a former um, Alabama football player, I met all sorts of people, and they were in really tough situations, like you know, no running water, you have to go topside for food, no electricity, but here's the one thing, no matter how bad it was, no matter how much they've been beaten down, Every single person that I talked to said, when I get out of here, not if I get out of here, or I will not get out of here. The capacity for believing that things will get better applied to possibly the darkest situations 
I've ever seen anybody living in uh, in New York. And then these little moments of beauty when you see like characters like touch one another's hands and like do all these things that w that that we would do not only above ground but but also underground in 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 that darkness. So I I do believe that the human being, the human heart, um, has a capacity to think that yes, we've got it. As Samuel Beckett says, so a lot of people think Beckett is the is is the most unrelentingly despairing of writers. I don't think so at all. Um, I like the idea of can't go on, must go on. And also, my favorite quote is, Beckett says, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. And I love that notion, failing better each time, getting better um, each time and, and moving on. Let's see if anyone's ready to ask questions. If not, we can keep talking. Who's going to break the ice? Who's going to be known as the first person who asked a question in the freshman class? Okay, you need to go to one of the microphones um, so that we can all hear you. And we'll ask people to uh, say who they are, where they're from, and anything else about themselves they might like to say. Um, Alexander, why don't we start with yes. you? Hi, I'm Alex. Um, Hi, Alex. I'm from Palo Alto, California. Um, I was just wondering how you got like into these other characters, who um, like prostitutes and uh, like a tightrope walker. How you really got into their minds and were able to write them as detectives? I think we have a lot of people written inside of us. I think we have a, an incredible access to DNA uh, that we don't necessarily acknowledge, and 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 the idea that one that this one body is the only body that we have um, seems to me to be wrong. Not only do I have lots of blood from different people, different generations of Irish people moving around, but I think we have a capacity to uh, dream ourselves into uh, the lives of others. So part of it is listening, part of it is uh, dreaming what they might be, but the other part of it is uh, a good deal of hard work too. I hate to tell you, it's like, you got to do a lot of research and find out about people and find out about their, their, their lives. But I think ultimately it comes about that you want to be curious about what it means to be somebody else. Okay, we'll go up here. I don't have a lot of names down yet. I'm working on them. Um, my name's Erin. Um, in the novel, there are a lot of overlaps and connections. So I was wondering... Um, how did you plan like for the story to evolve and was it hard to plan like the overlap and where characters would intersect? Yeah, I hate to tell you this, but the novel is just a constantly evolving mess. <laughs> <laughs> really, I'm serious. I didn't plan it out beforehand. I didn't really know where it was going to end. Um, I certainly wasn't sure that one character was going to meet another character or how they were going to meet each other. Um, I think that to be too acutely conscious or to be too aware of what it is that you want to do sometimes stiffens your work. And, and, and um, I know I write movies, and, and movies always know where they want to go. Part of the beauty about writing poems or stories is that you feel like a bit of an adventurer and you don't know where the hell you're going to end up. Sometimes that's, um, that's not such a good thing, but most of the time it is a good thing. 
Do you have to kill Corrigan? Did I have to kill Corrigan? See, the thing is, I swear to God, I tried to, I tried to resurrect Corrigan, you know. Um, I tried to roll away the stone away from the cave, you know, and I said, uh, come on, get up. But he kept saying no. I'm serious. Like for ages, I was really depressed about ki killing Corrigan off. And I was like, and then, but he just kept killing himself. Deanna. Hi, I'm Deanna again. Um, of course, your your novel was inspired by Petite, but you also mentioned that it was inspired by the dust on your father-in-law's shoes. So I was curious what his reaction was to your work. Okay, this is a great question. Um, my wife is here this this evening, um, and um, her father was in the first building to be hit, the second building to come down, and um, when he came up to our apartment, he threw away his shirt, he threw away his suit, threw away everything that had the dust of the World Trade Center on them. Um, however, he left his shoes by the door, and Allison was the one who said, um, after a while, you know, why are we keeping those shoes? And um, then she said, ah, I think we're keeping those shoes because in those shoes he walked out. And then we put them um, in, a, in a box in a cupboard in my office. Um, and I wrote Let the Great World Spin with basically with them over, over my shoulder. And then um, when I finished the book, the museum um, of 9-11, in the 9-11 Museum in Manhattan came to us and asked us to donate the shoes. And so Alison donated the shoes to um, the museum so they can be seen by people um, to come along. And I think you used the right word, dust, um, because dust, even biblically, reconstitutes itself. Um, and the, we, we, we can still make so much up um, out of it out of the dust, on, uh, even the dust on some people's shoes. Um, so I think in some ways it's about remembering, but it's also about like, you know, moving on and going on forward. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy, and thank you, Mr. McCann, for writing such a wonderful book. Um, I was wondering, uh, have you ever heard of the photographer Humans of New York? Um, because as I was reading the book, I was reminded constantly of different stories I've seen um, from him. Brandon Stanton is the name of the photographer. Um, and I was wondering, if you have heard of him, how do you think his work might fit into the theme of radical empathy? Um, and if you haven't heard of him, do you have another example of a current artist or someone who does represent the, the idea of radical empathy? Oh, um, what's the name of the photographer again? Uh, his name is Brandon Stanton, but he goes by Humans of New York. No, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but I will, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out tomorrow. Um, I do think that, 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 that virtually every good artist is involved with, 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 with the idea of, um, of, of radical empathy. And that all comes from um, you know, the notion of storytelling. You step into my shoes and I'll step into yours. You take responsibility for my life, I'll take responsibility for yours. Um, and I think if you're going to be a good artist, um, you've got to uh, embrace that. So I'd say virtually everybody who, um, who, who's doing that. But say even somebody like Springsteen, right, is amazing. You I know, love, you know, I love listening to Springsteen. And how does Springsteen know so much, you know? That's what I think about. Because how? he's from Jersey. Because he's from Jersey, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, how does a man like that become, you know, uh, 
and, and, and still at his age and be so successful and so on and still understand what it means to be, you know, down and out and kicked around and, and that's that's radical empathy. So I think all the good all good artists have it. I think you very much. What do you mean at his age? <laughs> yeah, at his age. <laughs> yes. Yes. Hello. My name is Clyde Tatum. Um, I was wondering. Get a little closer, Clyde. I was wondering, what is was your favorite character or like character that stood out to you the most as you was writing your book? Mm. Um, it's hard to have a favorite character. Um, you know, part of me thinks that uh, Tilly, the prostitute, was my favorite character because she's kind of funny. Um, and it's also a bit weird for a white male to be writing in the voice of a 38-year-old hooker underneath the Major Deegan. I will tell you that at one stage, my um, I was typing away writing this stuff for my daughter, Isabella, um, who was playing soccer, and she wanted to go play soccer in Central Park. And she slipped in a little note under the door, and I'm sitting there typing away. And I'm myself, but I'm really in the mind of the character. And Isabella's note says, let's go play soccer in um, Central Park. And I was like, I can't go play soccer in Central Park. I'm turning a trick underneath the Major Deegan right now. <laughs> and thinking in Tilly's head, I was thinking, give me five minutes. No, give me four. <laughs> so I can't... I kind of liked her because she had a sense of humor, but another part of me, um, well, I loved Corrigan because uh, he had that, 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 that um, link with Ireland, but I also liked um, the woman, Claire, who lived on Park Avenue, too, because she was different for me. Thank you. Thank you. Max. Yeah. Uh, Max Edelstein, Los Angeles, California. So basically my question would be, you know, as students, especially you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, going into college, we're told, have a thesis, have an idea, have something that you stand for. If you had one focal point of why you write or why you, you know, why you wanted to become a writer to get your ideas out there, what would that be? And if you had one thing, if you can only give us one singular message, I know you've given us quite a few, but if there was one thing you wanted us to know the most, what would that be? Um, did you say repeat the question? Oh, the good question, sorry. Uh, what's the one thing? Oh, there's so many things. That what's the one thing you would want people to learn from the book? That's what Max is asking. Yeah, right? sure. I oh, know, it's a great question. Um, it's, it's so difficult to, 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 to boil all this stuff um, down. But um, the one thing that I learned as a, uh, as a younger writer, I didn't have all these ideas. And I was sort of operating on fumes. And one of the things that I sort of up, uh, was aware of was that um, stories were valuable. People's lives were valuable. Didn't matter how poor they were, how rich they were, where they came from. That, that, that I was in a sort of democracy when I was involved in storytelling. And that I had to learn how to properly listen. Um, I also learned at an early stage that the only things really worth doing are the things that might possibly break your heart. So there had to be something pushing you, um, and, and, and that there was some sort of risk involved. The final part of your question, and it's a really complex, beautifully structured question, uh, relates to the idea that Aldous Huxley, a famous writer, philosopher, thinker, uh, a person who engaged with all sorts of ideas, 
his whole life long. Uh, he was considered one of the grand intellectuals, certainly of the middle part of the 20th century. He was asked at the end of his life to, to, to say what he had learned. Right? And people were expecting some great, big, crazy answer. And he sat back and apparently sat back in silence for a long time and finally said, I spent all these years and I finally learned that I wish we had been a little nicer to each other. That's that, and, and when I heard that, that was, wow. And, and, and um, people could say, oh, bring out the violins, we've got to be nicer to each other. But the fact of the matter is, we do. We have to be nicer to each other. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Hi, my name is Armand. I'm from New York. Um, my question for you is, this book is really well told from, the, from perspectives from all different characters. And what made you choose who to give the first person and who to give third person to in the story? There's a writer's question. Yeah. yeah. It's um, a good question. It's a good question. It's, it's hard. It's like, you know the way we all have different accents. So it's almost like you find the accent that belongs to the person. It's also, it's, it's um, you know, uh, the position of the person, the outsider, if they're outside, or um, you know, if you're going with a camera angle. Um, some ways I think it's almost cinematic um, that a writer works in this way. Uh, you find the right camera lens for that person and you go in and close up and you stay in and close up uh, and that's the first person. Or you have that high camera lens, that's the, the third person. Or then you have that weird mixture that might be the fisheye lens. Um, I can't give you a hard and fast rule about um, you know which is third person, which is first person, except quite honestly that whatever feels right is the, is the best one. And people have to have a compelling reason to tell their stories. And that's the ones you put in the first person. Thanks. These are great questions. Yes. Hi, I'm Nancy. Um, some authors really immerse their like whole being into their books. How does this book reflect your life and your experiences? Wow, that's a tough question. Um, you know, virtually, even when you're not writing about yourself, you're actually writing about yourself. So virtually every word that you put on the page is in some way um, autobiographical. Um, but and. Some of, some of the time, I don't want to think too much about that. Like, people say to me, you know, I write a lot about women, right? And I do. But um, I don't want to sit on Freud's couch and have him ask me the question, why do you write so much about women? Um, because part of the um, exploration for me is that I don't necessarily want the answer, but I want the expression to be down there. Um, but if I were forced to find, you know, who was I from, from that particular book, it would be this stuff that I'm talking about, optimism. That the world is tough and raw and uncompromising and sometimes incredibly, incredibly beautiful. But so what? What are you going to find beyond that that makes it, uh, that makes it valuable? Thank you. Gentleman from Albuquerque. Uh, I'm Aaron from Albuquerque. Um, so what was your process for putting the chapters in their respective books, and what made each book unique to itself? Okay, what was my process um, in putting the chapters in the book? 
and they, they, they more or less fell the way that they, 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 they fall now. I had a couple of things that I got rid of. I actually had a Muslim hot dog seller down on Wall Street who had his own section. Um, he sort of vaguely mentioned in the book. I took him out and I had a whole chess match that I had devised um, where these two characters came to a mutual stalemate. Um, and I spent a couple of months working on that, um, but I got, I got rid of that. So part of the exercise of writing is, is, is losing, um, losing certain, certain things that you loved um, and then trying to, trying to put them um, in a proper order and trying to think that you yourself would be the reader and, and, and being generous to the reader without being, being condescending. That's the most important thing. Doesn't it hurt to work on something for two months and then lose it? You Drop should it see the last novel I was working on. I just dropped about a year of work uh, not so long ago called uh, a book called 13 Ways of Looking. Yeah, you don't want to be in my house when I do that. <laughs> you should see the marks along the wall. Uh, right? Okay. Thank you. Hi. I'm Alice. Um... Concerning, I think it's on 298 is the start of this chapter, but your chapter about Tilly from Tilly's perspective, it's written in a whole different way from the entire rest of the book where it's all chopped up into either like one sentence to like ten sentence paragraphs with like little lines. And I was wondering what shows you to like style that particular chapter that way as opposed to the rest of the book. Yeah, um, I remember um, discovering the, 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 the Tilly style because... I figured out, okay, she's a prostitute, she hasn't got a whole lot of time, she's in jail when she's narrating this back, um, you know, um, she's looking back on her life, she won't be logical, um, uh, and, but I shouldn't deny her access to uh, poetry, I shouldn't deny her access to her smarts and her cleverness, um, and it seemed to me to be the best way for her to jump around and sort of create uh, a, a stream of consciousness that was um, different to uh, the consciousness of uh, Molly Bloom in James Joyce's Ulysses, which is one of my favorite books, but also um, to give her enough breadth and style so that she'd sort of be uh, unforgettable. And the way she made herself unforgettable to me was that she sort of presented her story. And I know that sounds a bit weird and mystical, she presented me the story, but um, I, I kind of feel that way. I do feel that even though the, the, I created this character, if I went back to the Bronx, she would still be somehow hanging out there um, and still be hanging around. But so I gave her the voice because it just felt like the, the, the best way to shake things up for her. So you meant that to be jarring? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I wanted it to be jarring. I wanted it to be a little confusing. I wanted sometimes to be um, funny and then, uh, and then, then heartbreaking and uh, afterwards. And sometimes things to actually make no logical connection. Because that's, sometimes that's what life is like. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, my name is Jessica. I'm from Ocean View, Delaware. Um, and you kind of actually made a joke about it earlier, but um, I think most people kind of associate Corrigan with a Christ-like figure, um, and I'm assuming that was intentional. But um, I also kind of picked up that despite this 
attitude that he had, it was almost all for naught because he died just like any other ordinary person. And I wondered if that was supposed to be like an over, like if that's a perspective on religion that you have or if that's just a general perspective. And then I'm also going to double dip and ask a really quick plot question. And the man at the end that Jaslyn meets, the second one, mm -hmm. is he significant and tied into all the other characters? The Italian guy? Yes. Oh, I'm glad I asked. Right. Um, so the question is about Corrigan and whether he's a Christ-like figure and... And uh, what, what? I'll, yeah, I'll do that one first. Um, Corrigan is a Christ-like figure. His name is John A. Corrigan. It's J. C. And um, there are all these things that are that, that are there. I mean, he obviously identifies with Christ, and he does these things. And 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 I think his answer to um, your question would be absolutely uh, that it's not for naught. That 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 is in incredibly meaningful but that people would have looked at the Christ figure, the original Christ figure um, from thousands of years ago, and thought originally that it was all for naught. Um, but that the story that came out of it, and that the teaching that came out of it, and the parable that came out of it, and the fact that he lived the way that, that he lived, is the thing that was incredibly important uh, about the lived life. Um, sometimes we want the lived life to be immediately meaningful, but sometimes it's not. And I think um, that Corrigan would have known that his life was valuable, even though it, it, it does appear initially to be all for naught. He does say at the end, I've seen something beautiful, um, but um, it is not... Um, uh, it is not... Well... In, ter in, in terms of in terms of my own philosophy um, and, and my own religion, I believe that all of this stuff matters. Without getting into deep, you know, religious territory, all this stuff matters. In relation to the second part, the Italian guy, he's the only person in the book who's not tied to anybody else. Thank you. Yeah. Don't you think we all have to live as if we we're going to matter? Oh, I I, I think. Yes, we all live as if we're, we're going to matter. But sometimes it seems that we don't matter. Right. We have to fight that off. Yes. My name is Katrina. And when you were in our discussion group earlier and were explaining the analogy between your story and the events of 9-11, you mentioned that you see Corrigan as a tower in the story. I was asking if you could explain that analogy a little further and who the other tower is. Okay. So, um... About, I, I talked about this thing about Corrigan being, um, it being very difficult for Corrigan to die. About three quarters of the way through the novel, I woke up one morning and I realized that the two main towers of the novel, Corrigan and Jaslyn, had been killed off in the first chapter. They are the, the, the pillars that actually um, hold up so many of the other lives and, and, and the interconnectedness of so many of the other lives. They had fallen in the first chapter, and now it was my, just like the two Twin Towers, right? now it was my job to reconstitute their lives um, as, as they went further along. Whether that was me reading into it too much, or whether it was me trying to put a new meaning on things and to convince myself that I was doing the right job, I don't know, but it was a huge revelation for me, and it helped me to, to, to finish the book. 
um, so that almost unconsciously I'd brought down the towers in the first chapter and now it was the rest of, rest of the book that was going to put them back up again. Yes. Hi, my name is Kate and I'm from Northern Virginia. And my question has to do with the degrees of optimism you were discussing earlier. I was wondering if the downfall of Corrigan as your main character has anything to do with the fact that his obsessive behavior contributes to pessimism and that he revels in the pain of others and believes he needs to experience it rather than accept how hard life is and move past it. Oh, that's an interesting interpretation. Do you want to summarize the question you're going to answer here? Uh, I think everyone got it. Could no, everyone or... hear the question? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think, I'm not so sure that, 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 that Corrigan um, embraced a, a, a form of, of um, pessimism. I think his uh, apparent pessimism, as you see it, was actually a deep form of optimism. One at one stage he says, um, uh, "Someday the meek might actually want it." In relation to the line, you know, "The meek shall inherit the earth," and he wants the world to be in such a way that um, uh, actually, I wish I, I could read you the little section that um, that makes sense of this, but um, where where he says. Let me just see if I can find it. Very, you need an very, index. Very, very, very quickly. Um, and it's not too long. Okay. So what Corrigan wanted was a fully believable God, one you could find in the grime of the everyday. And the comfort he got from the hard, cold truth that filled the war, the poverty, was that life could be capable of small beauties. And then it goes on to say, out of that came some sort of triumph that went beyond theological proof a cause for optimism against all the evidence. And even though he lives that hard life, I think um, he and his brother both understand at the end that it was um, deeply meaningful. Or I hope so anyway. Thank you. Thank you. Good question. Hi, I'm Sam. Um, so, obviously there are numerous characters and numerous perspectives that uh, help to tell this story, and I'm wondering if at the beginning of the writing process for this book, if there were other characters that you may have taken out or mm. replaced, and if not, how you knew that the characters you went with were the right ones. Uh, this might be a case for me having a limited imagination, um, but uh, there were other characters, yeah, and um, you know, I had, in, in fact, uh, as I said, there was a Muslim hot dog vendor, but uh, I also had a, a section from the point of view of one of the Vietnam vets who's later involved with the um, with the with the internet stuff. It's called uh, the ARPANET, the DARPANET, um, and I really wanted to write about Vietnam. I wanted to take the novel to Vietnam. I wanted it to go elsewhere, and I had to learn and teach myself to to rein it in, because if we went in all the directions that we could possibly go, we'd end up writing a, a, a completely a novel that would have that would unravel continuously and would have no particular end. And sometimes you just fall on the ones that you like, and then you just say, "Okay, he's enough. She's enough. We'll move on from there." Yes, get Hi. close to the microphone. Okay. Hi, I'm Alexis from Ellicott City, Maryland. And um, so there's one part in the story that's sort of funny where Tilly hears Kieran's name and she thinks that he, uh, 
she thinks that Lara sang Keyring. I was wondering if you included that just so that the readers would know how his name was pronounced. <laughs> you guys are I so smart. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. And also I thought, you know, well, well yeah, it's a little bit funny, but then the, there's a key ring. She has a key ring later um, yeah, when, I... when, 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 when she's in prison. But absolutely, 100%. Uh, you have to find new ways to give people um, information. And rather saying that, you know, Kieran, Kieran, and then she says Kieran, um, uh, putting it in brackets, that was the best way to do it. Thank you. Thank you. Good question. Yes. Where did you get all these folks? We have, we have the best students in the business. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jacob. I'm from uh, Hyde Park, New York. And I'm... Um, kind of going to step out of the box here for a sec. Um, before you were talking about um, radical empathy, and um, that was one of the discussion questions for the group discussions of your novel. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kind of got me thinking about uh, the Jewish holiday of Passover, which I've heard as described as um, uh, the Jews reliving what their ancestors went through in the desert all those years ago. Do you think uh, something as simple as um, not being allowed to eat any leavened food for eight days could be considered considered radical empathy when you put it in those terms? That's another good question, right? Um, yes, I think it is a form, but I think it's a form of radical grace, um, as uh, uh, maybe more so Oh no, maybe it's radical empathy along with the, with, with, with the form of grace. If it's done properly and thought through properly and, 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 and done with a degree of um, you know, need rather than just purely ritualistic. If it's just purely ritualistic, it's like those things that I went through when I went through the Catholic Church. I didn't know what they, sa they were saying. In, I thought in excelsis Deo was in eggshells this Deo. <laughs> I thought like, there was like some of this like Jesus stuff was having having a, a little bit of Jamaican influence or something like that. I don't know. You know. So I'd go through a lot of these rituals and I didn't really r recognize what they were. But if you can recognize what they are, particularly at a young age, and 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 you can know that you're actually yes thinking all the way back to your ancestors and their heritage. That and thinking uh, this is incredibly important because thinking back into the past is absolutely a form of radical empathy because you, you then know where you came from as well as where you happen to be. So, yes. yes. Uh, hi, my name is Annie and I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, I heard a rumor that this was possibly going to be made into a movie and I was asking if there were you, any... You want a job? I'd be more than happy to. <laughs> but... Um, I was wondering. Stay close to the mic. Good. Is this good? Okay. Yes. Um, whenever people talk about be books being made into movies and all these different adaptations, are there any particular parts of the book that you would be very strong about being in the movie? And would there be any parts you'd be one wanting to add or take away? Um. A good book should be a good book, and it should just remain as a good book. Um, and it sounds very simplistic, I don't mean it to be, but a good film should be a good film. Um, often uh, films are too slavish 
to the actual texts themselves and um, you end up making bad films out of good books because they're too close to, too, they pay too much homage to the book. Um, I think we should murder and recreate. I think we should take the texture, thank you. I think we should take the texture of a book the, and, and, and the, the, the general thrust of a book and then we should write and make a good film uh, based on that. So um, I tend to be quite different in relation to a lot of other authors. Um, if somebody takes one of my books and creates something entirely new out of it, I'd love it because um, nothing uh, hurts me more than to read a good book and then to see a bad film come out of it. And it doesn't have to happen. Thank you. Jordan. Ah, sorry. Hi. I've been speaking so much recently for orientation. Um, so in Stephen King's book about writing, he said, you know, no one ever asks at, at conferences like these, no one ever asks about the language. Um, so I was wondering if you would speak a little bit about your writing process and how you select the words that you do if you feel that you're crafting a grand mosaic or if you're discovering something or, or what that really means to you. Yeah, language is absolutely the elemental, it's the absolute key. Uh, for me, um, all plot comes out of language, uh, all shape comes out of language, all structure comes out of language. That to me, rhythm and sound and music are the most important things uh, that, that, that you can possibly get. Um, and the meaning will come uh, later out of the, the rhythm of, of, of uh, how the language and how the words are put down um, upon the page. So to me, um, I mean, it is the elemental question. And your professors know this. And, um, and, and, and um, that's why getting that music to rise up out of the page is the, is, is the best possible thing. But I do think that writers are like musicians and some are like Springsteen and some are like Van Morrison and some are like Coldplay and some are like Beethoven, you know? And it's okay. There doesn't have to be any one particular way to do it. Thank you. Yes. Hello, my name is Marina and I'm from Seattle, Washington. So at one point, I think that I read or heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you considered letting the tightrope walker fall. So if you did do that, why did you ever consider doing that? And either way, how do you think that letting him fall would have affected the story's outcome or the message of the story? That's true. In my very early incarnations of the book, I was only going to write about the tightrope walker. I was going to have him, I was going to be forensically correct about history and get him three quarters of the way across the tightrope and then he was going to fall. And that was going to be my comment on the Bush regime at that particular time. <laughs> and uh, my horror at uh, what was happening uh, with the politics um, of that particular time. In the end, it seemed to me to be only a device and to be kind of juvenile to do this. Um, and instead of getting to the deep core, and, and, and anybody could take a cheap which was a cheap swipe um, at the, the government. They deserve more than a cheap swipe. They deserve a kick in the arse. But, um, <laughs> but um, it just seemed to me that I was more interested in uh, the, the deeper part of the story, the people who were on the ground, the more supposedly anonymous corners of, of, of human history where the people were, were truly affected 
by all of that. So I abandoned that I, I, I idea and went on to, 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 to write this book. Thank you. Thank you. Reed. Hi, I'm Reed. I'm from Seattle, Washington as well. Um, and I was wondering, how would this book be different if it were set in the present day, especially concerning things like video on cell phones that can be uploaded to the internet and such? And if I may, one more question. Did you come up with the idea for this book before the film Man on a Wire came out or after? I came up with the idea before the film came out and I heard it was about to come out and I was terrified. I'd been working on it for about a year and a half, almost two years. Um, and I went across to um, 67th Street Lincoln Center to early in the morning to watch the film because um, I thought... I didn't want people to see me weeping my eyes out when I came out, when I thought the idea was completely gone. I came out of the theater, and um, I felt it wasn't the same thing as what I was trying to do. I thought it was a great film, a wonderful film, but it was completely different uh, to, to what I wanted to do, so I was, I was happy to do so. And sorry, what was the first part of the question again? Uh, how would the book be different if it were set in the present yeah, day? That's a good question. Um, gosh, I mean... Obviously, all the internet stuff wouldn't, you know, uh, all that really early internet stuff would be completely different and they'd be living it in many different ways. And people would be experiencing it all over the world, not just, say, in that little node in California. At the time the novel was written, um, or the time that, uh, that I, I placed the novel, 74, there were only 64 nodes on the internet. Um, and uh, now there's billions and billions and billions of nodes um, on the internet, of course, um, and it would be a radically different novel, though I would hope to think that it would have the same message. I don't know how I would do it, but I, I really hope to think that it would have the same message at its core, or at least that people got whatever they could get out of it and, and, and got some sort of feeling for um, grace or redemption or whatever that needs to be. Thank you. Yes. Hello. My name is Bella Masucci. I'm from New York City. You need to get more Sorry. on the microphone, please. Um, my name is Bella. I'm from New York City. What I really enjoyed about this book was how you unified um, the city that I live in from all the different class systems and all the different genders and races, and particularly by looking up at the Twin Towers and seeing this one man and everyone sort of staring. And I was wondering if you thought there were any particular characteristics that really define a New Yorker that you explored? Hmm. Uh, they ask great questions. Uh, <laughs> we, no, um, any questions that define a New Yorker? You know what I love about New York? Is that you can go there um, and arrive from, say, Dublin, and the very next day you can be an, a New Yorker. Right? You can get a job driving a taxi and not know where to go. Um, <laughs> you know? There are all sorts of uh, things. But, but New York embraces people and allows you to come from your original place uh, and also be a New Yorker at the same time. Um, that's what I love about its energy and its brashness and, 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 and the big crash of the city. One thing that we don't talk about all that much and one thing that we still have to remember is that in New York, we still have the poorest county in the United States. But New York... Is still, you know, in the Bronx, in the South Bronx, is the poorest cat, poorer than Alabama, Mississippi, any of these places, um, per capita. And one of the things that we have to remember is that New York, for all, how magnificent it is, is still a bit of a mess. But it throws up, it throws up so much vibrant, creative energy. <laughs>
We're going to take just the last five questions from the people already in line. Let's go up here next. Hi, I'm Max Heller from uh, Portland, Maine. So in your book, we see um, love found after the death of a brother and these friendships formed after the deaths of sons. Um, you say that there's beauty in the everyday. Uh, is there also beauty born after horrific events? I think there has to be. Um, and I think, um, you know, we could lie down in, in despair at everything that has happened and say, you know, history has ended and time has ended and, and the future has ended. But I think we have to acknowledge that even after um, horrific events, that we look at how horrific they happen to be, but there has to be at least the availability of some sort of hope that's going to come come afterwards. Um, otherwise, I think, you know, uh, there's a famous uh, sort of interpretation of uh, a poet um, who said that there would be no poetry after the, the Holocaust. Um, but there was and will be, because we, we always have a need to get over um, however bad um, it happens to be. So I would say yes. Yes. Hi, I'm Julian from Bethesda, Maryland. Um, there were a couple of characters... Get closer to the microphone, please. Sorry. Um, a couple of characters that came into the story that felt a little insignificant to the plot line, um, like the graffiti artist and the hacker from California. Um, I was just wondering what was the reason behind um, putting those characters into the story. I love this question because um, I stumped my German editor, who's a really smart reader. By um, He called me up one day and says, I love this book and I'm going to publish it now. But what the hell? is that kid who's taking photographs of the graffiti, what's he doing down um, underground? And so then I told him to turn to page 237, that particular photograph that we looked at earlier this evening, and that kid is the one who takes that photograph. And then at the end of the novel, um, the, uh, Tilly's daughter, granddaughter, actually owns the photograph. So it's actually connected in all sorts of ways. It's just not made entirely logical. The kids in the internet, they're all, they're all there. They're watching the things. It's very complicated, but, but, but that internet program was developed in Vietnam, and it would have been developed possibly by the son of Claire. And then at the end, when Kieran Corrigan goes to work in Dublin for an internet company along the water, I toyed with the idea of calling it the Sam Peters um, Internet Company or... Um, but I decided not to. But in my imagination, he's actually employed in a big conglomerate that belongs to a Bill Gates-like character, who's the character in the chapter. But some of it you got to leave open to mystery, right? And and uh, some people make connections that I haven't even seen are there, and I'm very happy to, for for that to happen too. So um, it's like a big jigsaw. Thank you. Yes. Hi, my name is Molly, and I'm from San Diego, California. You talk a lot about how um, the story came to you instead of you just creating it out of thin air. So I was wondering how the story changed you as a person and what you learned from the characters that came to you and created their story through your, your own voice. Oh, wow. 
That's a really honest question, you know. That that's I'm, see, I love this sort of form because you won't you never get a question like that from 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 a journalist or anything. How does a story <laughs> like um, change me? I think it just made me concentrate my vision and to understand um, who I was and to um, you know change my relationship to 9/11. I had a more mature relationship to 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 to, to what had happened. I wasn't only thinking about the four thousand people who died here in New York, but I was thinking about the, the many hundreds of thousands who had died elsewhere too. Um, and um, I think it helped me in um, forming this idea that um, you know of the valuable, of the symphony of a city, which is relating to the New York uh, thing, and um, to. Uh, look at my own um, career and to try and continue to sort of um, push as hard as possible against the supposedly impossible. A friend of mine, uh, Nathan Englander, says, the inexecutable is all I'm interested in. Um, and I didn't think it was possible for me to write a novel um, about 9-11, uh, um, and now I know it's possible for everyone. And also, it gave me a whole new audience and, and gave me a chance to come out to, like, events like this and meet a whole load of interesting people. Thank you. Odessa. Hi. Um, yeah, my name's Odessa and I'm from Oregon. But um, you were just talking about sound and how meaning follows. And you just reminded me about, um, there's this part in your book when you wrote that you, you will never hear something the same way um, after the first time you heard it. And I was just wondering, what was like, what were the first words or like the your first piece of advice that really stopped and made you think, and, you know, like, or made you stop thinking and just, you know, sat there <laughs> or something. The first words of advice? Yeah. Stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Like, um, what were the first things? I, I will tell you that one of the first things that, 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 that um, happened to me that I really truly remember was that I went with my father to London to see my grandfather who was dying in a nursing home and uh, I'd never met my grandfather before he was a bit of an old Irish drunk um, and um, he was lying in the bed and he looked up and um, and he um, uh, said who's that in the doorway and my dad said it's your grandson Colm and my grandfather said uh, another feckin' McCann <laughs> I'm like hmm how and ever when I went into the room and actually got to spend some time with him and sat up on the bed uh, beside him, he began to tell stories about who he'd been and what he'd seen and all of these things. Um, and the next week, uh, I remember going out to my father's office, which was in a little shed outside our home in Clonkeen Road, and asking, and I'd been given an essay from school, the person I most admire. And I said to my dad, do you mind if I write about my grandfather? And he said, yes, I don't mind. Go ahead. He said, yes, go ahead. I don't mind that you do this. And I realize now that I wasn't really writing about my grandfather, but I was writing about my father, who, who you know, uh, looked after me and didn't abandon me, the same way my father had been sort of abandoned by his own father. And I, I, I remember the grace of him just saying, yeah, write about your grandfather, don't write about me. And I thought that was a big thing. Samer, thank you. Hi, uh, I'm Samer. Uh, so the book, you know, took place. Uh, it started. It started in Ireland with Corrigan in his childhood, 
Um, and there was a lot of things, you know, the, the stories of the Vietnam War, you know, those 1970s. But uh, there was a lot of things going on in Ireland with the provisional Irish Republican Army. So there was terror, terror and violence with the people. So did you ever think about writing with that parallel? What made you so motivated as an Irishman to talk about 9-11 and America? And at the same time, why did you take the Muslim hot dog, hot dog vendor out? Say, say the last part again. At the same time, what? Uh, why did you take the Muslim hot dog vendor out? Why did you take the Muslim hot dog vendor out? Oh, right, the Muslim hot um, Okay, this is the last question, right? This is the last question. Well, I have to Except say, oh, one last one okay, of mine. One last one. But these have been incredible questions, and it's such a, such a joy to, 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 to meet such like, really agile uh, people engaged with this sort of thing. Um, 1974, uh, you know, uh, you're right, the provisional IRA were setting off bombs. In fact, um, in Dublin and in Monaghan, there were bombs that were set off by either the UVF or maybe even like some some people from the provisional um, uh, or from the British Army. It's a real source of uh, of controversy. Um, at you know, and that comes into the story a little bit when 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 Kieran comes across and he's been involved with a bomb blast, but really it's not all that deep in there. Um, and I think you pick a venue for 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 your um, for certain things like that. In a later or in an earlier book called Everything in This Country Must, um, I wrote a lot about Northern Ireland. In my new book Transatlantic, I write a lot about um, Northern Ireland and the tragedy um, that 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 is the North, and also the brilliant thing that is the peace process that's been helped brought about by by George Mitchell. Because nothing's harder than peace. Uh, I mean, it's easy enough to wage war. One bullet can wage war, but to wage peace, you've got to do it over and over and over again, which is magnificent to me. And why did I leave out the Muslim hot dog vendor? I sometimes ask myself the same question because he seems to give a complexity to the novel and a more of a sort of um, reason to um, to understand that this is a big worldview, a big symphony of the city. Quite frankly, he just wasn't very good and wasn't very believable, and I couldn't catch him very well. Um, and um, you know, I just thought best to leave it out, best to leave it to the imagination. No point in me saying something if I can't say it uh, as well as I possibly can. And I wasn't, and I thought it was better uh, without him. Um, and the title is vaguely inspired by the Mualaquat, which is the sixth century. Uh, pre-Islamic Arabic poem, and I thought it was there anyway. Um, Let the Great World Spin comes from Tennyson, but Tennyson was influenced by the Mualaquat, and I think uh, the line from the Mualaquat, um, and I'll finish with this, um, is that... Um, uh, oh, yes. Is there any hope that this desolation can bring me solace? Um, and it seems to me that that's the Ah, that's almost the theme of this evening. Is there any hope that this desolation can bring me solace? And I would say yes. Thank you. Thank you. I, I do have one quick postscript, postscript question, Colin. Is this your best book? Uh, no. What is? 
I don't know. I suppose the last book or the next book is always going to be the be, 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 be the be the best book. Um, I have a real fondness for my little um, Irish story, Everything in This Country Must. Um, I do think that my new novel, Transatlantic, is deeper and more mature than uh, this. But um, the one thing is, I don't know if the word best is ever is is ever good. And I think this may be important for all of you guys that um, none of this is ever an Olympics. Like especially mm. when we're talking about ideas, like m no book of mine will get the gold medal or the silver medal or the bronze medal. They're all exploring things in 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 different ways, and I think that's a good way to think about your own self in the classroom as well, or your own self in the dorm or wherever it happens to be. That it doesn't have to be um, an Olympics. That it it sort of shakes itself out. The good comes out of it in uh, lots of lots of different ways. I like them all for different reasons, and a sort of dislike them all too. They're never quite as good. <laughs> I'm serious. They're never as good as I want them to be. Certainly this is not as good as I wanted it to be. Colin, we have something for you that I would like you to uh, take out and put on. Very yellow. Aha! Perfect. Can I wear it backwards? Yes. Thank you very, very much. I like it. This has been a wonderful conversation you've had with our students, and we appreciate it very much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming.